Thank you, Kent. Uh, greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church. We are in a sermon series called, How Then Shall We Live? You know, in the midst of the confusion and the uncertainties that are surrounding us, what should our focus be as Christ followers? I can't think of a timelier sermon series than this. As a church, we are committed to five pursuits. These are the kind of disciples of Jesus we want to be. We pursue God, pursue relationships, pursue mission, pursue generosity, and pursue simplicity. We desire that all of us who are part of our church family will embrace these pursuits in your personal life. That These will be the markers that will define us as a community of Christ followers. Now, over the last few weeks, Pastor Henry has preached on our first four pursuits, and they have been powerful sermons. So let's continue to pray for Pastor Henry and Gwen for their full recovery. If you're watching this, Pastor Henry, we just want you to know that we love you and we appreciate you and so grateful to God for your life. Today, I want to do a second part to pursuing generosity. Now, our culture doesn't like openly talking about finances, but the Bible frequently addresses this topic. It appears to be one of Jesus' favorite subjects. Jesus made it very clear. How we view money is a clear indication of our spiritual maturity. Today, I'm going to focus on a passage of Scripture that is written to a specific category of people, the rich among us. And it's not very often Christians who are financially wealthy hear edifying sermons that offer them perspective on how they ought to live their life. All we seem to do is make them feel guilty that it's almost sinful to be rich, and that is not true. Being rich is not a sin. Wealth can very well be a blessing from God. The problem is not with riches per se, but how we use it. Several of the Old Testament believers were rich. Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon were all quite affluent. And even the New Testament characters, many of them we come across were financially well-off. Barnabas, Cornelius, Lydia, the Ethiopian eunuch who became a believer, Philemon, and I can go on and on. They were all faithful, godly people who knew how to use their wealth for God's kingdom purposes. So riches in itself is not the problem. In fact, rich Christians have an indispensable role to play in stewarding their wealth for God's kingdom purposes. And while I'm speaking to those who are affluent, do not quickly exclude yourself saying, this message is not for me because I'm not a rich person. You can't get yourself off the hook. The word rich and poor are relative terms. From a global perspective, I read, if you make $25,000 per year, you are among the richest 10% of the world. And if you make $50,000 per year, then that will make you the richest 1% of the world. 
Besides, what I'm talking about today is not just about how much you possess, but your attitude towards your possessions. So from that point of view, every one of us have to listen to a message like this from God's Word. Lastly, God wants us to be generous no matter what our economic standards may be. In respect of how much we own, we all are called to be generous in the use of our time, our talents, spiritual gifts, and our financial resources. So don't tune yourself off while this section of Scripture that we're going to look at is written to the wealthy. It has application for all of us. In the book of First Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who was a young pastor of the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was a diverse congregation comprising of people from various backgrounds and cultures. Paul, in a brief section, gives instructions to Timothy on how to address the rich people in his congregation. So that will be our text for today, what the Scripture has to say to those who are financially wealthy. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read from God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. And also just a reminder that towards the end of the sermon, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper. So kindly have a bread or cracker and some juice ready so you can participate in this worship experience towards the end. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we open our hearts to you, shine the spotlight of your word on us that we will be able to examine ourselves in light of the truth of your word. You will convict us, challenge us, bring transformation in us. That as we recognize how generous you have been to us, that our hearts will be flooded with generosity and the desire to bless others so we can be channels and instruments in your hand. So minister to us, Lord, today in the power of your spirit. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Who's a good driver? Everybody, if you ask them. The American Automobile Association published that over 83% of drivers consider themselves to be more careful than other drivers they encounter. Very young drivers in the age bracket of 16 to 18 were the most confident. And as we all know, this just doesn't conform with reality. Uh, more specific questions, though, revealed one-third of the drivers had texted while driving in the previous month, and 
half, about half admitted that they speed 15 miles per hour above the speed limit. Now, interestingly, if you ask somebody, how is the driving in your city? People would quickly say, terrible, there's so many jerks out there. But rarely will people admit, I'm one of those jerks. Now, the same attitude is true when it comes to generosity. Just as most people think that they are good drivers, in the same way, most people think that they are more generous in comparison to others. And when a popular magazine asked its readers, what is the most deadliest sin? The readers unanimously agreed, it's greed. But at the same time, no one ever admitted that they were guilty of being greedy. We often focus on the greed that we see in other people while ignoring the evidence of greed in our own life. We don't determine how generous we are by comparing ourselves with others, but we have to examine ourselves in light of God's holy word. That is the standard that reveals to us the true condition of our hearts. In order for us to be generous, we need the right attitude towards our wealth and possessions. That's what the Apostle Paul offers us in this text. Earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says something profound. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. A contentment is a state of heart And it is not based on how much is in your bank account. It is not dependent upon your circumstances. Paul warns those who aspire to get rich, don't be spiritually derailed in your pursuit of material riches because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But here in this section that we just read, he addresses not those who want to become rich, But these are people who are already wealthy. Paul's challenge to them is not to get rid of their riches, but merely channel it in the right direction. Paul takes a balanced approach in his perspective on wealth and riches. Now, at the outset, let me make this clear. Paul doesn't advocate for asceticism. He's not rebuking the rich for their wealth or asking them to renounce their riches. In fact, here in our text, Paul refers to wealth as a blessing from God. God, who is the owner of all things, decides how he is going to distribute this wealth to people. While Paul is not calling us to live an ascetic life, he also challenges people not to be self-indulgent. Our wealth ultimately is a resource given to us by God, and we are accountable to Him for how we use it. Just as God would hold us accountable for our time, for our gifts and talents, in the same way we are answerable to God for what we do with our finances as well. Paul gives some do's and don'ts in this passage as he addresses the rich people. Let me start with the don'ts. Here's the first don't. Don't become arrogant. 
So verse, the first part of verse 17, Paul writes, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. I mean, if you're rich, you're particularly vulnerable to this temptation of becoming proud. It is easy to think of yourself as more important than the rest, that you deserve a special place. You can take pride in your accomplishments, your house, car, possessions, your elite status. Look at me, what I have done through my accomplishments. Let me remind you, you didn't make it this far on your own. Now, our Christian testimony doesn't put the spotlight on us, on our accomplishments. Instead, we testify, but for the grace of God, I would have never made it this far. So God gets all the glory for it. C.S. Lewis gives a good reason as to what's behind our pride. This is what he writes. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being about the rest. So that explains why the rich are particularly vulnerable to this temptation. That they are about everybody else. Watch out for this attitude that makes you believe that you're more important. Paul wants yet another thing that we need to watch out for. Let's uh, look at verse 17 again. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The second don't is, don't put your hope in wealth. When you're blessed with wealth, they can easily become the source of your security. You start trusting in your riches. You fix your eyes on your possessions. When money becomes the basis of our hope, we will be fixated on our investment schemes and stock market rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus. The reason we shouldn't put our hope in wealth is because it's uncertain. Money offers us a false sense of security. I hear the words of Jesus here. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is saying here, your physical wealth will not last forever. Our riches here on earth will fade away. They are fleeting. The material wealth we have only pertains to this life. So even the best investment schemes are short-lived. There will come a day when you will have to bid goodbye to all of your possessions, all of those things that you cherished so much. Nothing that we own is ours in the ultimate sense. So rather than trusting in wealth, Paul encourages the affluent 
to place their hope in God who provides everything. There is a huge difference between the gift and the giver. We should be careful not to confuse the two. When the gifts become more important than the giver, then that is the sign that our priorities are messed up. So to sum up the don'ts, this is what Paul is saying to the rich, and it is applicable to all of us in respect of our economic standards. Don't be arrogant. Give credit to God for all of your accomplishments. And don't put your hope in wealth. Let God be the source of your hope. Paul now moves on to a couple of do's. Once again, he's speaking to the rich, but what he says here can be applicable to every single Christian. Here's the first do. Do good deeds. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. Paul is saying, you may be physically rich, but I want you to get rich in another area. Accumulate good deeds. Take every opportunity to do good. This is a mindset that we need to cultivate. When we are confronted by needs that are all around us, ask that question, what can I do in response? Many times, so many times, we do nothing. We see a pressing need and we close our eyes and pretend like it just doesn't exist. Or we rationalize by saying, well, this is such a humongous need, what can I do to make a difference to something as huge as this? Well, being idle and ignoring the needs that are around us is sin. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So when God gets your attention and places a specific burden on your heart, prayerfully ask, God, what do you want me to do in response to this? You'll be amazed to see what God will do as you make yourself available. The opportunity to do good lies all around us on a daily basis. And we need to be sensitive to the promptings of God's Holy Spirit in order to capitalize on them. I'll give you an example from my personal life. During this COVID pandemic that has hit India really hard, we came to know that there are a number of people in the part of India where my wife comes from who are in great need struggling financially. Many of them didn't have anything to eat. They were widows with small children suffering greatly. So we spoke to a few of our close friends and we all contributed to this cause. And as a result, 40 families in India received a huge bag of rice. Many of them were in tears and they said, why would someone who's so far away care so much for us? And looking at those pictures of those people just blessed our hearts. 
Oh, we hope that this is something we can do on a regular basis to help people who are in dire need. Now, I'm sharing this with you not to make myself look good. The truth is I am guilty of failing in this area so many times. But I just want to give an example of what it looks like when we are obedient to the promptings of God's Spirit and we then step out in faith and respond to that. Small acts of kindness can go a long way in making a difference. That's what generosity is all about. It is not about doing great things, but doing small things faithfully. The cumulative impact of it is seen over a lifetime as God, who is actively at work behind the scenes, uses and leverages our efforts for His glory and honor. Doing good deeds doesn't always involve money. You can use your spiritual gifts, talents, skill sets, time to engage in thoughtful acts of kindness. If you're rich, money may very well be your primary tool of generosity. There's a second do in our text, and here it is. Do share generously. Look at verse 18. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. If you look at the mindset of our culture, our culture calls us to be tight-fisted. Take care of yourself. Just hold on to your belongings. And in total contrast, God wants us to be open-handed, to hold everything loosely. If you have been entrusted by God with money, you're materially well-off, then you have an incredible potential to make a difference in this world. Your life can be an amazing adventure with God. You can partner with God to make His love visible in practical ways to those who are in need. We miss out so much when we just live selfish, self-centered lives that revolves just around our own needs. No wonder so many people's spiritual growth is stunted. If you want to grow in your spiritual life, I challenge you, excel in the area of giving. For you will grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus, and you will also straighten out your priorities. There's no other spiritual discipline that tests your convictions like giving does. This is what it all boils down to. How you use your money is a proof of where your heart is. When you look at the history of the early church, one particular characteristic just stands out. The early church was recognized for being generous. But the first 300 years of church history were tumultuous. But what was remarkable about those early Christians was not their preaching, not their ministry strategies or their big buildings. 
It was not their creative ability to contextualize the truth. But the most remarkable feature of their life was how everyone took generosity so seriously. Those first three centuries were the greatest periods of explosive church growth because Christians had won the hearts of their friends, neighbors, and family through their good deeds, love, and sharing. At any time, a calamity, disease, natural disaster hit a city, people just fled. But the Christians just remained and served and shared generously with those in need. And everyone around them, without fail, took notice of that. A sociologist, Rodney Stark, points out something remarkable in his brilliant book, The Rise of Christianity. He describes how Christianity arose from a small group to become the dominant force of the Roman Empire in such a short period of time. He presents the factors that would have contributed to this shift that took place. Stark shows that there were two great epidemics during those first few centuries. Often when a member of a family contracted the disease, the other family members would leave that person uncared for and just flee to a different area of the city. The Christians, however, did not do that. The Christians cared for their own family members and also cared for those who were left behind by others. Stark points out that it is their willingness to suffer in order to care for the sick that had a large role to play in numbers of people in the Roman Empire coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? That is how Christians can turn even a pandemic for the glory of God. You know, during this COVID-19 pandemic, it feels to me at least, the church is making the headlines for the wrong reasons. That we seem to be fighting the wrong battles. That we are being associated with the wrong cause. A Christian should not be perceived by people as the troublemakers. We should be known for shining the light in the midst of darkness. We need to show the world the power of generosity. And there is no better time than this, no greater setting than this, than a global pandemic where there's so many needs all around us. What an opportunity for us to live out our true convictions and meet those needs in the name of Jesus. Generosity goes hand in hand with our preaching and proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Just as God used an epidemic to change the course of the Roman Empire in the first century and advance his kingdom, he is well able to do the same today in the midst of a global pandemic. But it all depends also on the response of God's people. So here's Paul's exhortation to all of us. Do good deeds. There's no better time than this. And share generously of your 
possessions. Make God's love visible to the world around you. And lastly, Paul provides us the motivation to live this way. Look at verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Here's the secret. When you give to God's cause, you don't become poor. You become rich. There is an investment account that we all have in heaven. And this is the account that really matters to God. It brings eternal rewards. A person may be wealthy in the here and now, but their account in heaven may be empty. The wealth of this world don't transfer over to the other side. And when you die, instantly all of your material possessions turn worthless because you cannot take anything with you. Every rich person will one day become broke. Our monetary currency has no value in heaven. But when we give generously and invest our resources in God's kingdom, whether it's our money, spiritual gifts, time, our passion, and our commitment, we are investing in our heavenly account that will reap eternal dividends. We accumulate spiritual wealth that is incorruptible. So I want to ask you today, how is your investment account looking like? And I'm not referring to the account here on earth, but the one in heaven. Have you been, have you been investing there? For that is what really, really counts in light of eternity. You know, we're going to close our service today by partaking of the Lord's Supper. So this is the time for you to keep your elements ready, bread or cracker and some juice. Now, this is a meal that we do as Christ followers to symbolize our oneness in the body of Christ. No matter your economic standards, your culture, or race, we stand unified as one body in Christ. Generosity is the most God-like act we are capable of. We are most like God when we give, said someone. That's because our God is a giver. You know, the most famous verses from the Bible is John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Listen to these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, God's love was demonstrated in his giving. He didn't just give meagerly, he gave generously. It cost him everything, but he gave himself so we don't have to suffer condemnation for our sins. Jesus gave himself unreservedly 
so we can experience life and life to the full. In doing so, God is our role model in generosity. For when we give today, we are reflecting the character of God. So as we prepare now to partake of these elements, I want us to reflect on what God has personally done for you. The cross is the highest demonstration of God's personal love for you. So let your heart today be filled with gratitude. Receive generously of God's gift of love and forgiveness. For our giving is a response to what God has done for us. It's when our heart is captivated by what God has done for us in Christ that we are able to bless others who are in need. So reflect on God's generosity for you and then ask yourself the question, God, who do you want me to bless generously this week? Who around me needs a visible demonstration of your love? And if a name of a person or a specific cause pops up in your mind right now, would you commit to action that you will do something about it to demonstrate God's love to someone you know who is in need? Because I pray that as we all step out in obedience, that thousands of acts of kindness and good deeds and generosity will just flood our city. I want to give this moment for you to just quietly examine your heart as we prepare to partake of the elements. Thank God for his generosity in Christ, for what Jesus has done for you in giving you this gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Let's maintain a moment of silence, and then I'll pray for us. Lord, we are truly blessed to be recipients of your generosity to us. That you did not mind the cost, but you gave yourself sacrificially for us so we can be forgiven, we can be adopted into your family, we can be children of the living God. Now, as we have received your generosity, as our hearts overflow with gratitude for what you have done for us, Jesus, may we be conduits and channels of your generosity to others around us. Would you use us to make your love visible to those who are in need all around us? We pray, Lord, even as we partake of these elements, that this experience will serve to draw us closer to Jesus, that we will encounter Jesus in a deeper way as we partake of this meal. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. If you have your elements ready, 
have this in your hand. You know, the elements here represent the body and the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. You know, they are spiritual symbols, and by partaking of these elements, we draw closer to Jesus. Our hearts are once again flooded with a profound sense of gratitude and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for us in giving his life. So as we receive Jesus' gift of generosity, may we extend this blessing to others around us. The body of Jesus was broken for you. He became poor so we can become rich. Let's partake of this bread with gratitude. The blood of Jesus is the ultimate expression of sacrifice. So as we partake of this, may we be sacrificially meeting the needs of those who are around us. Let's partake of this with gratitude. Well, I'm going to hand it back to our worship team now to lead us in a couple of closing songs, and then I'll come back and close with benediction.